0: This podcast is a presentation of uctv.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover uctv podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What I thought we would do is is talk about some of the lessons learned, which I think is a a really, you know, important aspect to, any sort of medical practice and scientific endeavor is is thinking about what you've learned and and certainly uh, when we began putting devices in people's brains um, this was uh, a bit of a crazy notion and the idea that you can introduce electricity into very small amounts of tissue and affect changes across a neural network is uh, is really quite remarkable And, and I would say that there probably isn't a neuroscientist alive who really could have predicted the amount of network activity that could be changed by such a small volume of of electricity in the neighborhood of 25 or 50 cubic millimeters. And so it's an interesting story and and I'll try to share with you some of the things that I've learned along the way. And for those of you that um, went to video rounds last night and um, also uh, stayed for our troubleshooting clinical lessons, there's only a couple of overlap slides here that introduce the topic. And so I apologize in advance for that. So my disclosures, I, I, I'm unable um, to, uh, to take any money from industry. And so most of the work that you'll see has been supported by either foundations, philanthropy, or the majority of it through uh, grants to the National Institutes of Health. And I'm very grateful for those. Uh, This is my uh, career uh, trajectory, and um, and it really tells the story, I think, nicely about making brains electric, and so on the left uh, panel, uh, that's me, uh, when I took my first job at University of Florida and came on as an assistant professor. And my chair was very careful in saying, you're a polite kid, you write thank you notes, you're, you're nice, you're articulate. However, you're sticking things in people's brains, so um, try not to embarrass us. And, um, and, you know, when this sort of goes away, you know, you'll, you'll find other things to do. But, um, but just be a little bit careful. And that's how it started. I mean, brain stimulation really starts as sort of a crazy notion Uh, patients would come to the office, and they really weren't interested. You know, you'd tell them, okay, well, we're going to drill a couple holes and, you know, record out of your brain and leave something behind. And, yeah, no, I don't think we're going to do that. And so it was actually quite difficult at the beginning to get patients to to get on the surgical table. But somewhere, you know, mid-career, a few years down the road, I got a promotion to associate professor, and people started to say, wait, that's actually kind of cool there's some cool things happening in the awake behaving human and maybe there's there's something to this you know technology and now as a professor it's it's accepted people travel from all over they come into the office and they say you will operate on my father who has whatever. I mean, fill in the Mad Lib, you know, blank, and sometimes even for crazy things. And so um, it's it's definitely changed, you know, sort of from a crazy to a cool notion. And now... To you know, Cookie Monster in the smoking jacket—a very you know, like well, of course we're going to we're going to uh, make your brain electric. And so I think it's interesting to talk about this. And I never um, tell this story without um, acknowledging our group. And we have an amazing group. And this is our center. Uh, we're in Gainesville, Florida, and it's a 2,000-acre campus at University of Florida. And um, and we. Double our population during football games. So we don't have four million like you guys do, but we see patients from all over, and it's completely patient-centric and interdisciplinary, and all in the same place. And so it's a really, it's a really neat uh, place, and, and very focused on on the patients, both for clinicians and for for research. And this is our our team, and I want to really put a shout-out to them because they're amazing. These are some of our former fellows and trainees, two of which are now in San Diego, um, and uh, I got to see them last night, which was was great. And we train a lot of fellows, and the other interesting part of the story was people weren't interested in being trained before, but now we've trained over 30 fellows. We have a new contingent coming in, and we're seeing neurologists, neurosurgeons, psychiatrists, neuropsychiatrists, and now I'm starting to see applications from general internists, geriatricians, physical medicine and rehab. And so uh, I think we're beginning to see these bionic procedures and lots of interest uh, across a lot of diseases. So let's talk about where we're gonna go today. I I think um, our roadmap is gonna be uh, starting with why you would apply electricity to the brain. I think we should cover um, how does it actually work or how do we think it works, what's the science. Are we evolving now from disorders to starting to think about where these symptoms live in the circuitry? I think it's important that we learn the lesson of understanding adverse events And we have a real opportunity now in unlocking networks and using brain signature patterns to map uh, the future and the future of therapies and to guide other therapies that aren't electric. And then there's a public health challenge. And so that's the story that I'd like to, to tell this morning. And we'll start with why in the world would we put electricity into the brain? And this was a little thing that accidentally happened to Kelly Foote and I, we've been a neurologist and a neurosurgeon team our whole career, we were actually residents um, together, and uh, came back to start the center, and there were only three of us, it was Kelly and myself and one staff member when we came back to do this. And, uh, and so we've done a, a lot of these procedures over the years, but my wife and his wife sit on the performing arts board in Gainesville and so they had these TED Talks here locally and somebody dropped out and they said well you know, my wife and his wife said, Well, of course, Kelly and Michael will give their little spiel. They've been doing this for over a decade. And, they'll, and we said, Okay, sure. We'll give a talk for this. And, and she said, No, no, no. You don't understand. This is a TED talk. I said, Well, what's a TED talk? And so we had to look it up and figure out, you know, what, what it was all about. And then we realized that we had really gotten ourselves into some, some hot water. Um, but it actually turned out to be fun. And we, it, these talks have thesis, you know, or theses to them. And so ours was um, simple your brain controls everything. And we can control your brain. And so I think that's a really important notion. So let's bring that up again. Because when you think about it, it's it's a very powerful concept. But the concept actually extends to almost anything that we do, whether it's gene therapy or stem cell therapy or pharmacodynamics or or pharmacological approaches. And so it's important as we do these things and we intervene in real people that we have an ethical guiding principle. And so that principle should always be that we're trying to alleviate human suffering. And we have to be very careful as we apply these therapies and as we move forward. And that's really what that talk was about, and why would we do this? Well, there are many people suffering. This is a slide from uh, borrowed from Ray Dorsey um, when he was at Hopkins and now he's back up at Rochester. And he is looking at people above the age of 50 who have Parkinson's disease in the world's eight most populous countries and what's going to happen by the year 2030. And you can see that the amount of people at least in in these countries is going to double and so the burden is going to get very high and so as the population ages we're going to see this in multiple diseases not just parkinson and multiple diseases that might be amenable to neural network modulation so a lot of people suffering Are there therapies that we can deliver that have powerful symptomatic punches like DBS? And so I think the argument could be made that uh, it's important to consider um, these types of therapies if there is a chance to alleviate human suffering. So maybe it's not as crazy as we we thought it was a decade ago. So how does it work? What's the science behind this? Well, engineers love this. speak because the brain is really a group of circuits and in Parkinson's disease and other basal ganglia diseases which is where I started my career and I had the great privilege of recording with Malin DeLong at Emory University and learning about this family of segregated circuits and how they connect. And we know there's limbic circuits for behavior and associative circuits for thinking and we know that there's motor circuitry and eye circuitry and that there are these beautiful thalamocortical loops and actually other loops, even descending loops of basal ganglia and other connections to other important things that bring in other diseases, so not just Parkinson's disease and not just motor features. And if you can understand where these nodes are and understand how they're talking to each other in the awake behaving human, then maybe you can intervene and in some uh, really actually rational scientific way affect the change. And it's very simple as you can see from this schematic. Uh, What we do is we uh, implant a a DBS uh, lead. It's just a little straw with some wires in it. It's very simple technology. Currently has four little contacts on the tip, but this will change over time. We cook it to a little extension wire and push it to a uh, a box. It's uh, basically a battery source, and uh, and we can you know program you know one of thousands of different combinations. And we can put these leads into you know really small structures. You know almost anywhere that we want gray matter structures, white matter structures, gray-white junctions, and we can try to accommodate um, and try to disrupt the disruption. And so there's a disruption in these diseases that's flowing through these brains. And many of the diseases that we're addressing are actually quite normal. So if you go to the doctor, you get an MRI study, MRI looks pretty good to the naked eye. And so there's some functional abnormality that we're trying to address. Now, it used to be thought that this was you know, hocus-pocus and lots of you know, um, you know, mirrors and smoke screens, but now we know that there's actually quite a bit of science uh, behind this uh, reaction and, and what's happening. And so you, you can see from this schematic that if you introduce electricity into the brain, you actually do a whole bunch of different things that are actually quite, quite interesting from a scientific perspective. It was widely debated early on in DBS therapy that the mechanism of DBS was inhibiting. It's inhibiting cells. It's inhibiting everything that the electricity touches. That was a French notion, and they uh, came up with the idea that maybe it was jamming, so jamming the circuits. A lot of the American groups came back with the notion that what if what you're getting is actually excitation? And, and what's happening is, is when you introduce the electricity, there is actual excitement in these pipes we call axons coming off of things. And just like lots of transoceanic debates in medicine, it turns out that both groups are right. There's both inhibition locally to the field's excitation coming out. So there's a neurophysiological response. But we know that the nervous system is made up of more than brain cells. We know that there's lots of connective tissue. And in fact, the majority of the nervous system is connective tissue, glial cells, astrocytes, and so forth. And when you introduce electricity, we know that that leads to calcium being released from astrocytes and these really important chemicals that you've heard of like adenosine and glutamate and when they appear in the cleft magic happens like tremor gets suppressed when adenosine shows up in the cleft so there's a neurophysiologic response there's a neurochemical response and then blood vessels change both around where you're stimulating but in the network up and downstream and so there's a neuro vascular response and maybe the most interesting one that we've learned from people turning in their brains to our brain bank um, our bionic brain bank is is that around the electrical field neuroprogenitor cells actually spawn and upstream in subventricular zones on the same side of where stimulators are put we're now seeing these neurogenic changes as well so you've got a neurovascular element You've got a neurochemical element, you've got a neurogenic element, and you've got a neurophysiological element. And more than this, there's a change in the oscillation. So everybody's brain oscillates at a certain frequency, and their different regions oscillate differently. And in diseases, these oscillatory patterns change. And so in Parkinson's disease, we see beta oscillations only during certain activities, and they convert to gamma oscillations when we treat the patients with levodopa and with EBS and other things. In Tourette syndrome, we see a gamma oscillation. In other diseases, we see coupling between different oscillatory patterns. And so, these abnormalities together can be altered by electricity. They can be altered by pharmaco- um, pharmacological approaches. They can be altered by gene therapy. But understanding the mechanisms and how they can be applied is really interesting. And so I would argue that we have a little bit of science now starting to build uh, about what's going on with EBS. And so ultimately what happens is you introduce stimulation. Nobody predicted it into tiny little areas of the brain. And an entire network changes and things happen, pow, really fast. So you know, maybe you have tremor, and your tremor goes away, sometimes anxiety. Maybe you'll start to smile on one side of your face. So pow, you get these very powerful network-like changes with only stimulating in a very small uh, area of the brain. It's, it's, it's quite a remarkable story. And as we've begun to evolve this story, we've begun to understand that our thinking is too simple. So, we think about the FDA, we think about oh, we're going to take a therapy along, and we're going to say, okay, I want to give the therapy to Parkinson's disease patients. But not all Parkinson's disease patients are going to be appropriate for this therapy. And in fact, lots of the symptoms, neurological symptoms that most of you are interested in this room, function through certain circuits in the brain. And so perhaps we need to evolve from thinking about disorders to thinking about symptoms and where the individual circuits are operating. And so we've actually gotten pretty good at a number of things now in DBS over the last decade. We know what operations should be performed, targets, sides, simultaneous, stage, when should we operate, How early should we intervene? We're beginning to intervene earlier, and you saw that in the New England Journal just this past year in February. Who should be operated? What's the profile? What's the FBI profile of these patients? Why should we operate? And what's the argument for an individual patient? And so DBS has been really important in that it has allowed people to start thinking in interdisciplinary teams and crossing boundaries and so this is the typical workup of what happens to a patient who's interested in these types of surgeries. They're seen by large interdisciplinary teams like you have here uh, under the leadership of Dr. Barba and Dr. Litvan and making sure that these patients are screened out and that we understand when we meet and talk about them behind their backs which is the highest level of care by the way meeting about your patients with people in person behind their backs and making sure that you've discussed all aspects of care what is it that they want out of the surgery and can you deliver it and are you able to get into the right circuitry to bring it forward and we used to think about how we apply these types of surgeries in very simple terms so you went through this evaluation and if you weren't a perfect candidate if you didn't pass everything then you didn't get the surgery we now know there are exceptional cases, cases of people that have tremors or dyskinesia or things, but may flunk or have trouble in other areas. Maybe we can intervene and help some of those people. Maybe not everybody is a perfect candidate. And now we're thinking about palliation. You know, and it's a really interesting philosophical concept because some people you know, look at me talking and they say, well, you deal with a lot of people with Parkinson's disease. Isn't everything you do palliation? But we make these people live so long now, and, you know, and can we make them live better lives? You know, can they now sit in a chair because they have so much hyperkinesia, they can't sit in a chair and enjoy breakfast or enjoy their spouse, but they may have other issues. And so thinking about what can we do to alleviate human suffering, I think, is a really important thing. Um, this is from about a year ago. We've now done a, about a thousand of these leads. We're in all sorts of targets in the brain. And notice that, you know, even from our own experience, and probably similar here as well, the number of areas that we've been in. And you know, when I started in medicine and in, in movement disorders, I didn't think I'd be getting into all these neuropsychiatric diseases. And we have NIH grants in OCD. I've got two in Tourette now going in our laboratory. And, and you know, these circuits all connect, and so there's a big multi-billion-dollar industry that's beginning to develop as we start to understand the circuitry and, and decide how can we apply these things in a, in a rational way? Now, not everything is uh, completely straightforward, so let me show you a few cases, and I'll show you both things that work really well, but that we still have a ways to go. And so on the left panels are preoperative patient. This is a patient with Parkinson's disease. It's a very powerful therapy for suppressing tremor, for suppressing hyperkinesias, dyskinesias. It even was when we made lesions in people's brains going back to the time of Busey and other very famous neurosurgeons who uh, were early on in this um, battle, even the early neurologist, Hustler and Lots of the work by Irving Cooper we do good with a number of things, really good with tremors and dyskinesias and fluctuations and getting people more on time and levodopa responsiveness, but we still fall short in gait, freezing, balance, speech, and cognition, and these features continue to progress and continue to not respond as well to levodopa, and we're looking at new targets and new approaches, but I would posit that we don't understand the circuitry well enough, and we need to be recording out of more areas of the brain to better understand that circuitry and better guide the therapy. But if you have a patient that has a really bad hyperkinesia, boy, we're getting really good at finding these in the brain. This is a case that was from an old student, John Garf Adford, who's at the Mayo Clinic now, and these were patients that received um, the early fetal transplants for Parkinson's disease and the transplant sort of misgrew. We've learned all sorts of interesting things including the prion-like spread of neurodegenerative disease uh, is the new hot thing. But the problem was is that as these graphs integrated, people got dyskinesia, whether they were on the medicine or off, and it was awful dyskinesia. It happened in 56% of the patients in those original trials, and and the the most recent trial with Mount Sinai, it was over 50% as well. And so in this case, you can put in a a stimulator in the pallidum and completely suppress the the dyskinesia. So again, a very powerful palliative therapy for some of these patients. And we've gotten good at um, things that are rhythmic. Boy, people like me love to see something like this because, you know, it's rhythmic, it's oscillatory, um, it's a dream, right? So there must be an oscillator in the brain and so we can record out of multiple areas of the brain. And so he's 89 years old, World War II veteran, Um, parenthetically uh, captured Rommel's headquarters during World War II. but he's a journaler and he really wants to have his right hand back and normally we wouldn't have done an 89 year old but in this case um, he uh, did very well with the procedure and um, and we would not do a second side because we said this is, <laughs> it's risky enough to do one side in these cases. But, uh, but has offered him a good quality of life, and we've gotten pretty good uh, with this disease. Um, however, don't get too excited because there are lots of tremor disorders, thousands of different subtypes of tremor disorders, and if you apply the same technology and the same approach and the same targets and the same nodes, you don't get the same responses. And so this is an example of a patient with multiple sclerosis tremor, known to most of the people who uh, practice movement disorders as maybe the nastiest tremor in clinical medicine. It's because when you look at it, there are multiple frequencies that are at work here, meaning there's multiple oscillators. And so this is an NIH project from um, Kelly Foote, who's our neurosurgeon, um, that's just completed. This was the first patient through that trial. And what he does is he actually instruments two different regions of the brain looking for a palatal oscillator, globus pallidus, and a thalamic cerebellar oscillator, trying to shut down the tremor. And uh, some of these patients have done really well, but some of them have not, partially because of the progressive nature of the disease and because they become more disabled by the ataxia, which is different than the tremor, lives in a different circuitry. Not so good at that. So we've done a number of these palliative cases in spinocerebellar ataxias, MS tremor, Holmes tremor, dystonic tremors, fragile X. Results have not been as brisk as we've seen in other diseases. So what does that tell us? Do we claim success because we write articles about them? No, it means we've got to unlock the circuitry and try to do better and understand those diseases better. Another area, a target of opportunity has been dystonia, where agonist and antagonistic muscles fight against each other and land sufferers in uh, really abnormal postures. And sometimes the movements overflow from body part to body part and uh, can lead to contractures. And we now know in these children that we try to get to these kids before they get contractures, like you can see this fella here on the left preoperatively. He's normal until age five or six has a very rapid progression of his dystonia, and actually he has the dyt one allele, which is the old-fashioned Oppenheims dystonia or torsion dystonia, the first genetic allele that was described uh, for dystonia. Now there's over 20 uh, genetic uh, dystonias. And some of the patients have very brisk responses. And he actually has had a good response, except for his contractures, uh, which we can't reverse. And uh, have to work with him in an orthopedic sense to try to get him back on his feet. It's not a perfect therapy. Uh, He's probably going to be left with stimulators for the rest of his life, but, uh, but he will get stimulated and he will have a slow change. And so, what happens is is that he slowly changes. So, we started operating on these guys 10 years ago. We put the stimulators in, and nothing happens for like a month or six weeks. And we say, Oh my God, you know, what, we went through this operation, and nothing's happening. Then we start getting calls, you know, from mom. Um, the neck is starting to get looser, the arms are starting to get looser. Sometimes the patients come from long distances, and we don't even have a chance to turn the stimulator. And they, slowly, these patients are getting better and so there's this slow neuroplastic response that we need to understand in a number of these types of hyperkinetic disorders it's very different than tremor when we turn on the stimulator and in the case of in a minority of these cases not all of these cases the kids are going to wake up one day and they're going to say mom I think I can walk you know and they're going to throw away their wheelchair and get on the school bus and walk and this kid did and not every kid has a miracle story like that, and we've now applied these therapies to multiple dystonias, multiple choreas, multiple hyperkinesias, and we're not seeing this response across all of these things and we're not seeing the plastic response in everything and so we still have a lot to learn uh, about these disorders and in fact I showed a case of tardive dystonia last night and when you get it from drug induced dystonia is when we put in the stimulators in them they change immediately they get better immediately sometimes almost on the table and so a very different pathophysiology and we we are still so far away from understanding the circuitry we be yes sure so these, is the stimulation Uh, It depends, and so classically, most people start in the in the old VL uh, ventrolateral thalamic region and VIM, depending on which terminology for most tremors. Now, people have stimulated in STN. Some people have even stimulated in pallidum. In the case that that um, I showed you, all of the cases we've done in just VIM have been ultimate failures. They haven't been able to maintain benefit. The idea of that patent and that NIH grant was putting it in two different tremor generators because there's more than one tremor and then trying to suppress it so there was a palatal and a thalamic if that makes sense but we're not getting feedback on these as i'll show you later in the talk we're now getting real-time feedback on some of our research cases we don't know what's going on physiologically in the circuit and we don't have an up upper or downstream marker we've got one dumb blind lead that is leading to a real change and so we need to understand that better does that make sense So, um, neuropsychiatric diseases, if we look at the World Health Organization, they measure disability on this daily adjusted life year. Look at what's on top of cardiovascular, malignant neoplasm injuries. What's the, the biggest loss of dailies? It's neuropsychiatric diseases. And so you can now understand why so many people are interested in intervening. Uh, we got involved, uh, we had a little R21 a number of years ago um, looking at um, OCD and this was uh, the first case that we did and you can see in the left panel pre and post operatively. This is a patient from Davenport, Iowa. We did six cases that came from all of over the country. It was a really interesting experience. Uh, my first foray into neuropsychiatric disease. She won't sit down. Um, she makes me put on sterile gloves to examine her. She tells me I put on the sterile gloves wrong, which I say, well, you're probably right. I'm just a neurologist. you got to give me a break. And um, and she uh, is afraid of blood and contamination. Her husband, uh, when he comes home at night, he has to pull the car in the garage and empty out all the groceries like a sterile container like you would do across a threshold go into a decontamination shower strip all his clothing off before he's allowed to come in becomes completely disabling it's like Howard Hughes disease for these uh, patients, and this is a limbic circuitry, and so in these cases we've been stimulating in the nucleus accumbens and nucleus accumbens outflow uh, region, and you can see she's actually uh, about two thirds of these patients return back to almost normal life. They have complete insight, which was a great thing that I learned about stimulation surgery when you operate on people that have complete insight like they know when they're scrubbing their baby raw that they're doing something wrong if you actually fix them because they have the insight they're able to reintegrate whereas Tourette patients don't have that same amount of insight so you can make all their tics go away but whether they'll socially reintegrate is a totally different Issue And so these are issues we didn't understand when we got into neuropsychiatric disease, but we did see these really cool uh, contralateral smiles to the stimulation, and the patients could, could get euphoric for the residents and medical students. This paper was rejected so many times, I can't tell you. Um, you know the 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 anks that happened but it turns out that it's now been replicated on almost every continent and is a well-known response that you can stimulate in this region and get euphoria and smile and it's a limbic motor connection so that means if you turn up the juice they don't keep pulling so it's not it's not a, a corticospinal capsular effect it actually goes away it only happens in the middle of the bell curve and so again we're into these limbic motor regions um, here's an example of a, a patient like this.
1: Can you all hear that? Oh, man.
0: So it starts out as a unilateral smile, spreads to become a bilateral smile. Describe what smile, you're feeling right a now. Very euphoric response. I feel, happy. feel happy. Can you describe that? I'm yes. So
1: happy, like, like, <laughs> like that
0: I feel happy, like someone just called me and told me I want a cruise. So an acute effect that doesn't last—you know—it doesn't last. It actually habituates over a number of weeks and months after the surgery. But again, you're into this limbic circuitry, and the the generalized function as measured by psychiatrists tell me this is sort of unheard of to be on the left side of the curve and actually shift to become more functional. And so that's the goal—to alleviate. Suffering, and we're evolving this goal from you know starting to look at things not as the disorders but as the individual symptoms. And so, I would argue that when you look at these patients, stop asking the question, What is the DBS target? Ask the patient, What's the bothersome symptom or group of symptoms? and then understand whether we can deliver as we understand the circuitry. And um, your neurosurgeon here will tell you we can tailor the targets. We can tailor gray-white matter junctions. We can, we can now do fiber tracking. We're starting to, to get closer to where we need to be. But we want to tailor based on not the disease but based more on the symptom, which is going to be tricky as we move into personalized medicine and, and have to go in front of the FDA and across the continents to different regulatory agencies. Now when you're tailoring, you have to remember there's a lot of places you can hit. This was from an old editorial um, that was a very unpopular editorial at the time because it was widely assumed that subthalamic nucleus stimulation was the best um, stimulation for Parkinson's disease and people just sort of abandoned uh, GPI when they learned they could do it without making everybody um, hemiballistic and you can see we even painted a little black eye onto the GPI but you know for the students and for the residents it's really important to know that, that there's dogma and there's data and, and it's important to know that now there have been multiple random target comparisons that have actually shown for motor benefit across these both in unilateral and in bilateral and across continents, you know, across the world, it's now been replicated that that the motor function is about the same whether you use either target. So big, you know, shocking thing, and it keeps showing up as the same. And so there are target-specific differences in unilateral versus bilateral and things that we can take advantage of. And so, for example, this was from a subset of the randomized NIH compare trial that we ran a number of years ago, and it shows as you move the lead, you see the candy red... Um, stimulation field in the subthalamic nucleus, and in, in one group of patients in the in the globus pallidus, and the other, we got much more of the cognitive issues from that smaller target and moving the stimulation field around, whereas we didn't see those changes in the larger target. And so there's some notion that maybe this target might be better in, in certain uh, profiles of patients. And so, you know, we might start to redefine this and this is an article that's in press coming out this month um, in the new uh, Journal of Movement Disorders Clinical Practice where we redrew the cartoons and we now know, for example, that STN does very well in medication reduction. Reduction in battery changes and has a better economic profile, so certainly scores a knockdown there. And GPI seems to be a much stronger dyskinesia uh, suppression a target the ease of programming and flexibility of medication adjustments is easier over time because you can give more medication as the disease progresses without um, the lower threshold for dyskinesia and ballism and so there's an advantage uh, to GPI so they score a knockdown so I would say that we're sort of at this level where we can begin to say in a, I think a more academic way that perhaps it's a it's a draw and we can begin to have these um, ESPN like scorecards where we start to actually look at what are the symptoms and what are, what are our patients and, and should we be using one lead or two leads and trying to limit side effects and, um, and try to maximize Benefits, but I'll I'll remind the students that never um, interpret a randomized trial as simply yes or no. It's human nature that everybody just wants to, you know, what, okay, so tell me, Oaken, what's the answer, yes or no? But really, it's not that simple. So if you look at the cohort that was analyzed, been analyzed many times from that NIH cohort, if you look at a unilateral Lead in subthalamic nucleus versus GPI, and you look at the dotted line here as GPI. It's very clear that a single GPI lead improves your quality of life much more than an STN lead. And when you get your second STN lead, the, the the lines will converge again. And so if you have an elderly patient or somebody that you want bang for your buck, you know perhaps even though they tie on the main, you know outcomes, there's a reason to start thinking about tailoring for an individual patient. And we now do. FBI target profiling, and so we're looking at things like balance issues, we're looking at medication reduction, we're looking at economic profiles, we're looking at cognitive issues. All of these things should be taken into account, you know, perhaps if you're looking at trying to decide uh, which of the targets is better. We also know that these are complex behavioral syndromes, and we've learned a great lesson that you can get these impulse control disorders, gambling, shopping, hypersexuality. I mean, more than normal, right? We, we all have these, right? But, um, but these patients get them very severely in these diseases, and it's been argued that you just implant them with a stimulator, and, you know, you're going to reduce the medications potentially and make these go away. And it turns out that uh, there's been two papers, one by one of our medical students, Sarah Moon, and, uh, and another uh, by Kim in Korea that have exactly the same findings, showing that lots of these patients have these issues when they go into surgery we tend to operate on younger patients younger patients have more of these dopamine addiction or impulse control problems and after surgery we can see patients who don't change but even patients that worsen or have de novo cases and so we can actually precipitate uh, with our care some of these issues emerging and so that the story is not over and in fact these patients require lots of long-term care So I think it's important that we talk about understanding better the adverse events that may come up from surgery. And remember, we're sticking this lead into the brain, and so this is one of the brains that was turned into our bank. And you can see we push through the tissue, and because we push through the tissue, there's going to be a surgical lesion effect. Some people call it a micro-lesion effect. Um, Some people uh, uh, call it an implantation effect, and that's going to impact potentially outcomes. And so you have to ask the question, You know, are you dealing with an effect just from doing the surgery or are you dealing with an effect from applying the stimulation? So you see the candy red stimulation model from Cameron McIntyre's laboratory in Cleveland Clinic, and he was very generous with us over the years in in helping us to model many of our patients, but and trying to understand what's stimulation and what's lesion. And perhaps the greatest lesson that we learned was from this article and this um, group of investigators that had the courage to randomize patients to receive bilateral STN, DBS, with a constant current device. Everybody gets the device, but a quarter, 25% of the patients don't get turned on for several months. So a bit of a courageous experiment. And, And what did we learn as a group? Well, we learned some really interesting things. Like just by putting the leads in, you get two more hours of on time. And so in Parkinson's disease, that's the name of the game, right? So it's, it's this bizarre thing for the medical students where you take this medicine and you feel on and you're able to perform better and your motor gets better and many of your non-motor symptoms get better and so we call that ons. And so if we can get more hours of on time, which you know, becomes harder and harder as you live with Parkinson's disease, then that's a win. And so what happens is, is in both groups, so they got two hours of increased on time just by putting the leads in. We didn't even turn them on. So, you know, that's remarkable. So there's some sort of micro lesion uh, effect that's going on beyond the placebo and nocebo and placebo effects that happen that have been calculated. We see improvements in motor function that got even better when we turned the device on. So certainly the device was better than just the lesion. But the most interesting thing was this, this little graph that shows that the lesion the implantation only and the stimulation did exactly the same thing at the three-month time point when uh, a quarter of those patients were off and then when they were both on. So that tells us that their verbal fluency, the most common cognitive side effect of DBS, was present whether they turned the DBS on or not. So it has something to do with the actual implantation of the device, whether it's trajectory, whether it's it's uh, other factors, whether it's going through caudate nucleus has been suggested, I don't know. Uh, but there is definitely a surgical price to be paid for, for, uh, for doing these types of procedures. We've also learned important lessons about tolerance and disease progression. And remember, when you, when you put electricity into the brain, what happens is, is you're changing the neural network. And over time, if the patients get worse, which is going to happen when you're dealing with degenerative diseases, you have to ask the question, are, you, are they worse because the disease progressed or are they worse because the brain is really smart and it's tired of this chronic continuous stimulation that you're showering upon it? And so this was a great little, very simple summer project by one of our medical students who's now a resident at University of Pennsylvania, and he looked at three years of all of our DBS patients and it showed that at three years, in controls and in patients with DBS essential tremor gets worse. So the tremor gets worse no matter what you do. And when you turn it off to on, you get the same amount of benefit. So you're still getting better, but the tremor's actually getting worse. So we're seeing a disease progression. So the 10 or 15% of what we see in the literature as being called tolerance is actually disease progression. And this is very different than Parkinson's disease. The same curve in Parkinson's disease doesn't exist. When we suppress tremor, we suppress it forever. must be a different circuitry. Now, if it was tolerance, what would happen is you would see uh, these two lines converging together, and you would no longer see this off to on benefit. We saw that in one patient, and when we looked carefully, the lead was migrated, it was in the wrong place. So, so this, again, is kind of interesting because you would have predicted that the brain was gonna start to outsmart the stem, but it looks like a lot of what we're seeing in some of these diseases is, is, is certainly due to the disease progression. Now, I think it's very exciting in getting into the networks, and we're very interested in recording, and our newest project in the lab is recording and and stimulating in multiple areas to try to capture the network in one disease, and then we have another project we're hoping to go into multiple neuropsychiatric diseases based on this model in Tourette, and we became interested in Tourette because Tourette is perfect for this. It's a paroxysmal disease, right? It's some sort of electrical activity pattern that just comes up randomly, semi-randomly and causes these ticks. And we figured, well, if we can glom onto that, we can teach a neurological device to respond to these abnormal electrical patterns as they emerge. And so this is a patient um, that was in our, our first uh, NIH trial with, uh, with Tourette, with human Tourette, and she has a special device that's completely contained within her head. No battery here. The battery's up here. goes into the... Into the brain, it was manufactured by NeuroPace and and um, and slightly changed for this study. And we're getting real electrophysiology, local field potentials, groups of dendrites in real time. But what we did as the first proof of principle was we had these patients, very severe Tourette patients. You can see all the medications that they're on. This is what she looks like at baseline. Many of them have self-injurious behavior all sorts of other comorbid issues, coprolalia uh, in a number of these patients, uh, the abnormal vocalizations, and the abnormal tics. This is what we do typically in DBS. We just turn it on and forget it, right? Continuous stimulation. We actually put these patients randomly on schedules. And so in this, her schedule was 16 seconds on, 120 seconds off. And many of the patients had you know, the same response that they had with turning the device chronically on and so the brain responded to a non-continuous stimulation paradigm which is one step away from can we develop and understand what are the brain patterns both in the operating room when we're recording from single cells which we've been doing now and in the clinic getting these local field potentials in this awake behaving young woman and say what is changing in that brain And can I teach the device within the network to respond to the brain? And so that's what we're interested in doing now. And so this is work from Nick Mayling, who got his PhD based on this work a couple of weeks ago. So we're very proud of Nick. And this is before DBS. These are the local fuel potentials. So these are these groups of dendrites. And when you turn the DBS device on, when you see tick suppression, you always see this low gamma pattern frequency come up. It's a marker that my god you're like this is the you know, this is what's changing in the brain oscillatory pattern and there may actually be some coupling changes between alpha and theta but but there's a very striking change and you can see in these patients in this example in the number 4 and number 3 patient that gamma pattern came up and that's when their ticks got better and so there's a physiological marker for the improvement and our next experiment now human experiment is to be looking in multiple areas across the circuit while the patient's awake, capture the activity, and then hopefully design the device that's going to be able to respond to the activity in real time because there are changes in these physiologic patterns that happen before they become visible uh, clinically as the ticks. We've gotten very good at the motor Ticks and the vocal ticks, but that's not what's most disabling for these patients. So, we need to understand in the neural network what's going on with some of these other behaviors that are keeping them from integrating into society. So, just a last uh, shout out for meeting the public health challenge there's over 100,000 of these um, implanted bionic devices that are out there now. Patients are coming to your operating rooms. They're coming for procedures electively. They're coming to the ER. They're going to primary care physicians. And we have to, I think, take this seriously, begin to track these patients. We started a registry um, for neuropsychiatric diseases in Tourette. We're going to need these sorts of outcomes Uh, across continents to be able to gauge this so that we don't end up where we ended up before the last time we went down this road with psychosurgery and, and psychiatric surgery. And so as we get into psychiatric aspects of neurologic disease and neuropsychiatric diseases and blend together, we're gonna to have to realize we've got a lot of these patients out there. We're gonna to have to be aware of what's going on in their chest and we're gonna to have to be careful as we, as we move forward and so I think it's, um, it's really important and the horizon is gonna be exciting. We're gonna see tailored DBS. I think you'll see multiple leads with both recording, stimulating capacities, more ability to record off of multiple areas and more specifically steering and driving different circuits specific symptoms the imaging's improving the hardware's getting smaller sleeker smarter we've taken the step to scheduled stem we're going to take the next step to responsive stem you're going to see it in the next decade and i think collectively these types of brain signature patterns are also going to be important because as we send this out into the community we can no longer say you've got to go see irene litvan and her team because nobody else can handle these devices we have to have rational things that can be used, like the gamma patterns and the beta patterns and other things that we can put into your hands and say, here's the way you can handle a very large public health problem and do it in 10 minutes, either in your office or at home through mobile computing platforms. And so I think there's, there's quite a lot of challenges to rolling therapies both from the laboratory and from our imaginations into things that are gonna be functionally useful for society and are gonna be sustainable. So thank you so much uh, for the invitation to speak. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, if anybody has time, I'm happy to stick around and and answer some, some, uh, some questions. So thank you very much. Probably the most shocking thing about these, we have about 40 brains and buckets now, from all over. The most shocking thing is what we don't see. You know, I, I just expected to see all this, you know, disruption of the of the brain tissue. And actually, uh, what seems to happen is a very on regular histopathological sections, we see uh, very small amounts of inflammatory change around these. Occasionally, you'll see evidence of a prior hemorrhage, either at the top or at the bottom. I've only seen one case where we saw a collagenous sort of scar come up around the DVS lead, but what we're not seeing on histopathology is really shocking to me. So we've taken some of these cases to confocal microscopy. Um, there's a fellow named Bill Shane who was at Wadsworth Institute who's moved over now to, um, to Seattle Children's who looks at these cases with us, and we see a, a quite a lot of astrocytic and microglial Responses under the confocal and a lot of changes in reorganization as to what's going on there. And there's a paper coming out with a group from the Netherlands who used our tissue and their tissue together where they looked at these elements and up and downstream um, issues coming out in plus one. That's very interesting to see that it's not only the stimulation here but there's actually molecular biological changes going on across the network very little has been done to characterize this it's extremely low-lying fruit for those of you in this room that are interested in this sort of work um, And but, uh, but what we don't see on general histopathology I think is there I think it's just that we're not looking hard enough for it um, is that what you were asking or?
1: yeah, I, yeah I mean, it's completely separate issues um if you're so, the idea of sorting out circuits and understanding where simulation really is most effective, obviously EEG would be very useful. If one could do this kind of component analysis that allows you to look for sources, are you using that tool or those tools in your evaluations?
0: So we are. Uh, we're now beginning to integrate um, signal processing. Approaches that were really born from the from the EEG and epileptologists and epilepsy researchers and it 's really an interesting story because you know I started out as the single cell you know thing, and the epileptologists were looking at local fuel potentials now all the epileptologists I talk about are interested in the single and we're interested in their LFps and we even ripped off a piece of the neuropace device for epilepsy to start using it in our Tourette um, population, uh, but you know lots of really advanced signal processing algorithms now to to look at these issues and it's i think it's also surprised me what you can get out of the signal that you can't see with the naked eye i've been you know like i, I actually kind of thought 10 years ago maybe that that was going to get washed up you know maybe they, maybe they, we were going to take it as far as it could go but it seems that there's quite a lot hiding uh in these signals but uh, is that your feeling too
1: I've been impressed here with folks who do this analysis using this method and being able to localize sources of uh, activity, amplitudes, and, and power. So power analysis, but also frequencies. And to be able to do it in somebody walking around, do it continuously, and be able to understand before the device goes in where you might stimulate it, and after it goes in whether you're doing it. It's an interesting possibility. I haven't done it myself, but I think that technology is a signal process. I think
0: we're right on the edge. I mean, there's a, a number of our groups, some of whom may be here in this room, who are all competing for this $100 million of DARPA money or $80 million of DARPA money to get into seven neuropsychiatric diseases recording and stimulating out of multiple circuits. Our group is going on our Tourette model and experience, but there's several other models that have been very successful. One down the road from you with Phil Starr at UCSF in Parkinson's disease, and he and I exchange notes all the time on the different diseases, and so I I think it's a really fruitful and interesting area. Um, The other disclosure I didn't make is that um, Brett Meyer and I went to medical school together, and to residency together, and did all of our residency trips together. But he ended up on the west coast, and I ended up on the east coast. But he's a great, a great guy, and uh, and so I didn't disclose that that is Brett is the secret of my <laughs> success. So. You're yeah, yeah. Really Brett is a great guy. I can tell you, we've had a lot of fun, and uh, we didn't get arrested for any of the things we did in medical school or residency, but we survived uh, together. A,
1: there seems to be a debate everywhere about if, if anybody should be in planning domestic. would put them in and it would require constant programming and much more so than we saw in any other patients yeah. just to continue to see whatever effect you got at the beginning and then you would kind of lose the effect and increasingly when I refer to patients for a uh, procedure the surgeons are actually wanting to do a, a later procedure the old procedure we used to do which the patients would usually end up with a hectic carousel afterwards and, um, what, what is your thought on the ideal patient
0: uh, to do a simulation t- Yeah, so it's a great question. I completely agree with all of the sentiments and emotion and the physicality of the data that you're expressing. It's very clear that much of the early literature, people put the devices in and if you if you're not in the field, you don't understand how the it's reported. And I can make myself look good in DBS. You know, it's like kind of like statistics, you know, like to show, tell me what you want me to, to show you and I'll figure out a way to show it to you. You can do the same thing in DBS. And the way you do it is by changing the stimulator and doing an immediate measurement acutely. Because if you're close, a lot of times you can get an acute effect for a number of different um, psychological and physical scientific reasons. And what happened in the MS cases that was I think tragic was people were changing the stimulators like multiple times over and over they'd lose the benefit then the people would come in and they'd change it and go oh look it's back and they'd take a video picture and they'd show you that and then they'd report the better things but not on what was holding. The general rule now and we were talking about DBS failures and we see one or more a week at our center and have done a lot of Work in this area is is that if you're not holding, you know, if you even in Parkinson's and tremors and other things, if you're not holding your benefit, there's something's wrong, you know, either with the location of the electrode, um, it's usually a location issue or some other hardware related issue. In MS, it's tricky because the tremors now we do physiology on them before we operate, and then we see how complex they are. So they have multiple peaks in their power spectrum. There's multiple different types of tremors, and it's the ataxia that makes it quite difficult. And so uh, the ideal candidate at this moment today at this time are the patients with less ataxia, which can sometimes be hard to separate, more rhythmic tremor, people that have to sit on their hands you know they have so much tremor you can at least knock it down so they can use straws and other things. but like the first case that I showed you. Um, is a little bit deceiving because she did well because she had a lot of tremor. She had two different types of tremors, but not a lot of ataxia. The other thing is is we've stopped putting a single lead in. you know. So we've done this study, and we try to get two. MS patients oftentimes have a proximal segment involved, and when you examine patients in the clinic for tremor, the best outcomes are the patients who are distal, because of the somatotopy in the brain and if you're in thalamus thalamus is like an onion skin and when you unpeel the onion skin physiologically there's a lot of shoulder at the top and at the bottom it's very hard to get it so how do you get it we can heat up a lead a lesion probe and get a whole bunch of tissue you get a lot more tissue with a lesion so that there is logic to thinking about lesion therapy for these patients or you can try to guide into multiple circuits in multiple regions and so its region its exam its presence of ataxia and then its primary versus secondary ms and a lot of the secondary progressive ms cases are having trouble in a lot of other areas and then you add a stimulator and sometimes you can push them over so how sick they are in general disability also affects their their um, their outcome and what do they want to get out of it do they want to be perfect or do they want to just be able to eat a little bit and drink out of a straw and and have a little bit of palliation and so it's really a tricky story Um, but we don't operate on everybody very selective do
1: you guys have any data on the autopsy cases of what happens to some nuclear deposition on the treatment side increase decrease?
0: so um that is a terrific question and we have just turned over the, um, a few of these brains to a researcher named Ben Gieson, uh, uh, who works with Todd Goldie in our Alzheimer's Center, and they're interested in just that question. So um, stay tuned. They're, they're actually looking at a few to see see what the, what the pattern of spread is. I'm skeptical, but, uh, but I think it's a good enough scientific question to look, look at it. And a lot of the things that I'm skeptical at end up being the most exciting so i also realized that
1: Um,
0: well right now we're just looking at what we got you know because this tissue is hard to get the other thing is is we have some cases that are only unilateral and so that's that lends itself to the you know to looking at sides you know side to side comparisons um so i don't know it'd be interesting to see what they come up with um
1: finding that the astrocytes are accumulating is there some concern now in the ALS uh, literature Uh, there's some concern that the stimulation changes the astrocyte and some unknown factor in your brains are you seeing any evidence of any other neurodegenerative changes particularly of the ALS uh, variety in your brains
0: we haven't yet but we haven't looked you know, we don't have enough. I always tell the patients, you know, like nobody, um, you know, everybody thinks about organ donation and, you know, you, you know, your heart and everything. But, you know, particularly when you're bionic, you know, you're a, a, a very valuable segment of society. So not to be morbid, but when you're done with it, if you could please give us your brain, that would be great. And we just don't have enough to know the answer to that question. But I think we will soon, based on the number of, people that are being implanted at very high rates and the number of researchers that are now interested in the science, we can answer that question. I think it's no. I don't think there's a lot of badness coming out. I don't know if that's a scientific word, but I don't think it's going to be as, um, as bad, but I do think there's going to be changes that might not be positive. And then my follow-up question, can plans for like,
1: gene expression uh, work like in when you implant them, and what
0: is yes, there's a number of groups working on that, both in combination and separately, but I haven't seen anything good yet. So if you can quickly do it, you could be right on top of the nature Medicine, medicine. It needs to be done. Thank you.